Hello, and welcome to the Rethink Energy Weekly Podcast, where the Rethink Energy Analysts talk about the week's energy news. I'm CEO Peter White. We have with us our solar analyst, Andres Vantanar. Hello there. Um, hydrogen and aviation analyst, Bogdan Avramuta. Hello. And our EV and oil analyst, Connor Watts. Hello. And of course, our product manager, Simon Thompson. Hello. On, our, on today's podcast, uh, we're going to discuss how PV installs in the first half of the year have beaten everyone's expectations and ask just how high they can go. We're also going to talk about a deal between Hearts and uh, Hertz and BP this week uh, on EV charging and wonder if perhaps car subscriptions are the future for the old car rental companies. And according to one source this week, hydrogen has almost reached cost parity with diesel eight years early. So is diesel a fuel that's already over? And finally, we ask our man in the street, Simon Thompson, what caught his eye in the issue this week? First, we go to Andres. Uh, and how unexpected were this quarter's solar figures? Um, well, it wasn't that unexpected. Um, after the sanctions on, on the world's, on Europe's fuel supplies, which really drew, drew, drove up global fossil fuel prices. And, you know, one of the things that directly benefits from that is solar. Uh, you have solar module costs going up, but I, I'm pretty sure it's more than um, compensated by the rise in electricity uh, prices. Uh, so it's one of the new, one of the things people shift to. I thought your, your forecast for, for this year... Um, led the lack of polysilicon to to kind of undercut, you know, put a maximum ceiling on how far high we could go. I think 2021 was the year that was most constricted in terms of the polysilicon supply. Um, I mean, <laughs> that's kind of a whole extra topic which we could go into about just how restricted it is this year. Um, actually, that's one of the things I covered in, in the um, in the quarterly figures, which are actually half yearly figures, because I never got around to doing a, a Q1 figure. So I just did Q1 and Q2 um, together. Uh, I, I, this time, I included export figures and uh, the monthly polysilicon supply. And you can actually see that the polysilicon supply, which is still a bottleneck, is um, going, it went up by 5.6% on average through the first six months of the year. Which sorry, I mean, five point six percent over six months, or each month for each six and months? every month cumulatively, compounding wow. uh, amazing growth. Uh, so basically, it went up from. Uh, I'm just trying to find the right page in my thing. I mean, it's it's in this report that you can read, but it went up from something like forty thousand tons per month to sixty thousand tons. Um, so, might... so subscribers will know that that um, Andres is talking about a report that's in our paid section, forecasts and data, if you're on the website. Um, it, it, we've written a news story about this week, which will give you a, a brief summary, but we, we haven't released all the details except to our paying subscribers, just uh, uh, so that you know. Oh, I, I should stop blabbering uh, too many fun details like that. But yeah, a, a point I was about to make is that when you have a bottleneck, uh, for example, of polysilicon, there's two ways that it constricts it. First, it does put a hard physical cap. But then additionally, because of the shortage, people will charge more for it, which then puts an additional sort of uh, financial screw of maybe an, another 10% gets dented as well. Now, obviously, when, when you disrupt the, the world's fuel supply, um, the impact of that extra high price is sort of lessened because everything's more expensive, including the alternatives. Um, so I, I guess we should talk about 
uh, region by region. Um, as uh, you know, what we're saying is it, it totally bears that out. Uh, the biggest regional growth is Europe. The the year on year growth for Europe is up forty one percent from last year. Um, for the full year, I predict it'll be up almost fifty percent. But maybe that's actually underestimating it because you know that's that's if you look at how much has been installed so far. But bear in mind the the actual the fuel sanctions only started what in February. And this uh, the first half of the year ends in June. So there hasn't actually been that much time to react. Um, and really the most astonishing figure is what, what you get from the Chinese customs data, uh, which oh my, I've got too many sheets and too many graphs. I should have all... Just get on with it. So I won't, I won't actually look at the, the appropriate graph because you should, uh, you should pay for it to, to look at it, really. But um, you can see this... The, I. I China's monthly exports of modules have now risen to 15 gigawatts per month. And right now, Europe is buying 9 gigawatts per month. That annualizes to 108 gigawatts per year. So, so uh, and last year, I think uh, Europe, off the top of my head, installed what, 26 gigawatts. So does that mean it's going to install four times as much uh, one year later, like a quadrupling of the solar market activity? It's I mean, I mean you, can't get, you can't get permits uh, that fast for that much solar from a standing start but but we get the idea that 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 um that, that solar in europe has, has, has had the gloves taken off and everyone's uh, piling into it yeah i mean italy's come from nowhere to do one gigawatt in the first half of the year probably two gigawatts in the second half um or is it or is that per, is that the first and second quarter man i uh Really yeah, not. but the thing about Italy that we have to understand is it's still a very immature market. Mm. Up until 2018, um, you couldn't use agricultural land for um, for, for uh, projects, and as a result, um, it lagged the solar market. And yet, it has brilliant solar resources. Um, the entrepreneurs in that marketplace are just starting to to, to get up to speed. And, and of course, it's one of the central government policies is trying to sort out the energy crisis and cramming a few more solar installations in each year can help a little bit. It's obviously it doesn't solve the whole thing immediately, uh, but Italy will be one of those hard, very hard hit countries when it comes to gas imports uh, and it, it will be reforming things. Germany definitely is. It's trying to double its its uh, installations this year. I think that can be achieved. Uh, however, not if the new government in Italy have anything to say about it. They'll do a deal with Russia for gas. Oh, you still think so? I, I thought she said something nice to Zelensky. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm sure you're right, but that, that was the worry um, as they were counting the election uh, votes up. Okay. Okay, so so where where does this leave us globally on the on the platform for solar? We even uh, over the last ten or fifteen years, everybody has has under forecast solar growth. We thought that we'd come along and we got the hang of it and we forecast it perfectly, and then suddenly it's even outstripped our growth expectations. Yeah, I mean, even in the last quarterly update I did, which was the end of 2021, I said, well, next year is going to be uh, much higher because the bottleneck of polysilicon is going to ease. And um, 
it's a rapidly growing market. There's all these particular national markets that are reforming and incentivizing it. And I said, oh, it'll probably be 204 gigawatts. Now I think it's 224. It's so hard to overestimate it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, where does it leave us? Well, I, I, I come back to this. You, you, you can, again, look at it sort of through polysilicon, although that's going to recede in importance. Um, there's potentially 4 million tons of production capacity being built, which is enough for over 1,000 gigawatts a year. So that won't be the limiting factor. But then you have to ask what will be if the, if the fuel supply is, uh, continues to be messed around with, like with these pipelines being blown up in the Baltic, um, if there's more sanctions and just general disruption, if there's something – if a war can start in Ukraine, maybe there could be one in Iran. Certainly – this is going to be used as an opportunity to really crank, um, lock in the energy transition for renewables in Europe. And I, I just find it, I come back really to what Longy said, the world's biggest module manufacturer and wafer manufacturer, and said we could see 1,000 gigawatts of solar installed in 2030, which is up 50% over our recent forecast. They said that before our forecast was released. Yeah. Right, that's all great news for China. Um, you've written another story this week talking about India's um, attempts to build its own solar industry. Um, we're aware that um, Joe Biden wants um, solar in America to be um, um, more focused on um, a supply chain uh, that comes from America. What chances do these countries have in, in this period of massive growth of of actually getting something right and, uh, and setting up a challenge to, to China. Well, the Indian government thinks that it will that it can put in two point four billion dollars of production linked incentive production linked incentive funding. It's a bit of a mouthful, and that they can use that two point four billion to mobilise eleven point six billion of, of overall investment, and they say that that will be enough to build 65 gigawatts of mostly vertical, fully verticalized production capacity through to about half of it all the way through to polysilicon. And I looked at actually the investment costs that we report for our, the Chinese factories that come online pretty much every week. And the, the, the numbers do pan out. Um, so really, in terms of the you know, building the factories, they can do that. I just wonder if if it will be just the module and the cell technology that is competitive or if they will be able to go all the way through to uh, wafers and polysilicon. Because ironically, India is more advanced in promoting polysilicon manufacturing than the U.S. is. Like, it looks more likely to happen yeah. in the near term. And yet it's the U.S. Yeah. which is, sanctions Xinjiang, which has a lot of polysilicon manufacturing in it. Meanwhile, uh, India, as far as I know, has not. Um, and it's not pushing that kind of angle. So... Will will India's uh, high upstream manufacturing of wafers and polysilicon will that get outcompeted even now, even after all these new policies uh, by Chinese imports? Now we got we got a question about this from one of our customers recently. He's, he's saying, will, will America allow Chinese polysilicon to be manufactured in places like India um, and and the rest of Southeast Asia? to be absorbed inside the US? Will they draw the line at polysilicon or will they draw the line under polysilicon? What do you mean allowing 
polysilica? I mean, if it's manufactured outside of China, does it really count as Chinese just because it's got a Chinese company involved? Or are you saying, what are you saying? Well, I'm just asking. We get this question all the time. Will uh, American authorities, especially when the Commerce Department um, uh, uh, countervailing uh, uh, action comes comes back online in two years, will, will they allow the import of um, of modules which rely on polysilicon manufactured by Chinese companies anywhere in the world? Oh, right. Yeah, and if they true. will... And if they will, will that only be outside of China or will it only be outside of Xinjiang? Xinjiang, sorry. Well, Xinjiang. Yeah, it's, it's, a bit, it's all a bit awkward because Biden says it, it, he actually used the word genocide a while back. And the US really has been interrupting the, the flow of Chinese modules on and off with things like the withhold release order, the sanctions. And it's tried to get the EU to do it, uh, to do the similar thing, which I think the EU has, has done something that's sort of superficial and sort of face-saving, perhaps. Um, so you would think that they wouldn't allow Chinese polysilicon, including things made of Chinese polysilicon, to enter the US. Um, and I think, I think actually that they will continue to exclude it because in, in the US they do have first solar. They do have... And that's not a poly- and that's not silicon based. But then, you know, they, so not they, if they're going to double, not if they're going to quadruple in, in in their outputs as well. If they're going to suddenly find, like Europe, that mm. they want to grow, 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 then how can they keep the Chinese polysilicon out? Yeah, I guess they will just have to pay more and, and thereby fund uh, and incentivize the existence of uh, polysilicon factories that are outside of China, that could be the US itself, because they do at least have um, a three, I think it's a $3 per kilowatt, sorry, a $3, uh, how does it work? A $3 per kilogram subsidy for polysilicon. It's about, it's half of the marginal cost of production. Right. For, for China, right. it's not half the marginal cost of production for operating that in the US, though. It's rather of less. Not. So, you know... <laughs> Well, well, what about if they could set up factories in in Mexico, in Chile, Chile, you know, somewhere in South Latin America? I think think India, Indian polysilicon might be a thing. Also Malaysia and Vietnam and Southeast Asia in general. Um, I I just, it it would be kind of weird to to call it a genocide and sanction it and then eventually allow it back in just because you can't be bothered to sort out an alternative. But at at the same time... They, they're really not willing to screw over the solar developers and just stagnate um, development of renewable energy. So I, I just find it very hard to predict what they will do, especially since it's politicians. They might as well go whole hog and 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 uh, subsidise the creation of polysilicon at a reasonable level, perhaps adjusting um, the subsidies upwards in the future after consultation, mm-hmm. and create their own industry that can grow... Um, sufficient silicon for its own uses at least but preferably some for export to the very ripe markets of Europe so that, that's what America ought to be doing um, and so so should Europe but we know that Europe hasn't got the appetite for it I mean one thing that the Solar Energy Industry Association of America the SEIA has said which I find quite uh, credible is that the way that solar manufacturing will be reshored to the USA is first modules because you know that you have U.S. buyers for that, 
And then once you yeah. have module manufacturers, then you can resource cells because you now have a, a module factory that can buy the cells. And then once you've done that, you can do wafers because now you have an American cell factory that can buy them. And then you can do polysilicon. But the thing is, that takes like 10, the best part, the rest of the decade to get to, for it to um, tumble down all the way through uh, up the supply chain. Uh, what, so, what, so you have this gap from, from the end of the uh, tariff moratorium and such, such like. Uh, in, in June 2024, all the way to 2030. Uh, it's just, I'm still, I just can't really quite answer what. So, what so we're we're getting um, we're getting the kind of reverberations of what is going to be a one decade long trade war um, for ownership of all these energy transition markets, and we see it everywhere. Um, we don't just see it in solar. Um, and if America wants to uh, respond properly to Chinese trade threats, then it has to do, stop putting its foot on the accelerator of fossil fuel technologies. Uh, and that's down to not just this president, but the next one and the one after. I'm just going to move on now. Um, just want to talk briefly about a deal uh, between um, Hertz and BP this week. Um, what, what this deal is really about is just a, a, a memorandum of understanding to work on EV charging. Um, but this comes on the back of uh, a, a week after uh, um, General Motors um, cut a deal with, um, with Hertz as well for supply of um, of. Uh, 175,000 cars going forwards. Um, I'm just wondering, if, if you were Hertz or Avis or any of those large companies, um, those car rental firms, is there any kind of future um, in the EV marketplace? And, and is, does it look more like subscriptions? Um, most car companies are thinking about offering a subscription service for a car. I've had a uh, quick read of that, and I think that one of the benefits to subscription services and kind of leasing systems as we see in the US is obviously just lower from cost for the consumer. I think as long as it's able to be price competitive after a while, when it comes to competing with traditional leasing systems and as long as well, I think it will be popular within the US on a cost basis. I think that's the point where it will properly penetrate into markets. I believe the article mentioned that Hertz has a lot of um, has a lot of stations and a lot of capacity around airports and around. An awful lot of airports have have Hertz rental cars, and if you can plug in your EV there, um, whether you are a Hertz customer or a General Motors customer or any other or a BP customer, um, it, it, it's obviously. Uh, a great place to ensure that the logistics of, of car subscriptions work or car rentals work. Um, and Hertz has only just come out of Chapter 11 bankruptcy last year. I wonder if that's significant in this deal and maybe a complete rethink in, in the way um, cars are, are rented. Uh, they've got the infrastructure, the retail infrastructure with those pickup points. I always go back to, uh, I heard Steve Jobs, when he launched um, iTunes, talking about what a horrible experience it was to pirate um, music, and it was a much nicer experience to use iTunes. And 
when you look at the experience you have when you rent a car at an airport at the moment, it's a terrible experience, which involves about one hour of paperwork um, and signing your life away. And then they always skin you for extra insurance at the last second uh, and you end up paying more. Um, this industry needs to become honest with customers, become an online proposition, become a very smooth process and, and not be about airports. It needs to, you know, uh, um, we know that um, uh, Volkswagen uh, has just completed its uh, purchase of Europe Car, and Europe Car is going to be at the centre of its whole mobility strategy, and that includes EV charging, but it also includes renting cars to industry and commerce, um, uh, subscription offers, and day-to-day -day rentals, it, it, all of the above. I think there's pretty massive potential within autonomous driving and electrified fleets to then effectively, within certain markets, to just massively reduce individual car ownership. Have you guys heard about um, Key for All? Where is it based? Um, I think it's, uh, well, it's US. I'm pretty sure it's New York, but I'm not sure if it's the entire US or not. Um, it's basically this thing that I just came across randomly. Um, you buy so you buy a key. It's like nineteen dollars, I think, and um, the key has got like an LED system onto it. And if you get close to a car um, that the keys obviously work for, um, you can just get into the car and drive it. Obviously, the cars are part of the company. And but the the, the catch is that anybody with a key can drive the car. So if you park and somebody else finds the car, you just drive it away. <laughs> Isn't it designated a unique, you know, barcode or something like that? Which I don't know in details. Um, it's just like the, the the whole concept is like shared cars. So you get a key, you buy a key, and if you find their cars, you can just drive them. But if anybody else finds the cars with the key, after buying the key, they can just drive it. If you have a kind of like a a system where once you've attached a key to it, it's locked onto that individual identifier for an hour or up to however many hours that you're then able to use that vehicle before other people are then able to use it again. Yeah, it's got to be app-driven. It's got to have time limits. It's got to be app-driven. And um, look, ride-sharing and robo-taxis are not the same thing. Ride-sharing is a threat to car rental, no question. And it's already here. And, then, and, and that looks like an, a new innovative model for ride-sharing. And that's great. And I think that that will take off. Um, Robo taxis may not take off now, uh, but but they might take off in five years in California. But will they take off globally in that time frame? No. Um, so uh, I think ride sharing is is a definite threat. Ride sharing sort of merging into subscription services is I mean it's the answer surely. Um, no. Rental car rental company has the money to spend on um, on self driving cars, so they have to become beholden to the car makers, Google, or somebody that does. Uh, in the end, they end up owned by them. Surely, Hertz is it? If Hertz is getting all its cars from General Motors, General Motors and Hertz buying Hertz is not far away. It's it'd be less than ten percent of its market cap. So I think that's the end for uh, all, all of these 
rental firms. They transition into a, a utility uh, service side for one of the car companies. Based on ch- subscription service? Based on all of the above. Mm, on, yeah. on ride sharing, right, yeah, subscription okay. sharing, um, yeah, all of the above. When you look at this kind of thing with ride sharing and rentals and just the, the way that EVs need the charging infrastructure to exist at scale and the charging infrastructure needs EVs to exist in large numbers to be worth building, does that mean that there will be a decades-long gap between uh, how long it takes to reach 100% EV penetration uh, between sparsely populated countries versus a place like Japan and China? Yes. <laughs> like, what, what, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what was the question? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so like China will reach 100% EVs and then, like central China at least, and then Midwest America will take another 30 years afterwards? Yeah, I think you're thinking about China uh, slightly incorrectly. Mm. You know, you get a province, it's got 60 million people in. That's like a country. Uh, and the central parts of that will, but then it'll still have... Um, it'll still have uh, uh, um, rural parts. So, you know, perhaps it starts to look a little bit more like Australia's outback and America's square states in terms of population at some places yeah. inside China, yeah, but, but not in the conurbations. And I think the same for Europe. Uh, yeah, I think all of these things are true. The, 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 um, it's hard to... Pre- look, look at the way the mobile phone networks started. Mm. They start in cities where they can get maximum usage and therefore highest profitability and early profitability. And then they get a kind of universal service obligation almost thrust upon them. You know, we don't trust you unless we can get this everywhere. Uh, And then slowly, with the profits from the the conurbations, they move out to the edges until 99% of the marketplace is covered. What happens at at some point is that the infrastructure for internal combustion engine cars collapses. I've made a forecast that at 200 million cars globally being internal combustion engine instead of the huge number that are today, over a billion, that at 200 million, the distribution of of, um, fuel becomes impossible to do profitably. And so at the point where we get down to 200 million ice cars on the road, it collapses. It almost goes into a kind of uh, government subsidy program to keep it alive, to stop people losing transport. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's that that that's the that's the, the story of it. Economic uh, uh, improvement for all the EVs, and then suddenly uh, petrol vehicle collapse. About twenty forty five. Okay, I didn't want to spend too long on that. Um, so. Bob Dan, according to one source this week, hydrogen's almost reached cost parity with diesel eight years earlier. Does that mean it's here now or here in two or three years? What does it mean? And and, uh, what does that mean for diesel? Well, I don't think diesel is dead just yet, but I think this signifies another, almost another nail in the coffin, um, if I were to to put it that way. Um, I think Loop Loop Energy, Canadian fuel cell uh, company, They've uh, come up with a new fuel cell system design, um, and they claim to have a higher efficiency, um, which seems to be enough to kind of 
bring hydrogen in a close competitive realm with diesel, considering that now diesel prices are have well have risen um, the past couple of um, uh, months and years. Um, and their um, their design uh, novelty is um, based around the new uh, bipolar play design. So in a fuel cell system, the bipolar plates they um, distribute the gases, they uh, dissipate the heat. So it's all to do with the rate of the reaction. Uh, they didn't release a lot of details about it, so this is my understanding of it. Um, so they have a, an efficiency of about 60% now, system-wise, which is um, about 15% higher than uh, legacy fuel cell systems out there. But they um, they aim the system at the medium and heavy-duty transportation market. So diesel will still play a part in passenger cars, um, and I'm sure Connor can fill in some numbers about predicted um, EVs in the next 10 years or so, but I think generally we expect diesels to still play a part in the passenger cars until um, EVs and uh, fuel cell um, passenger cars take over. So there was a guy in uh, California who, who always talked about the tech uh, boom and, and talked about naming uh, competing, you know, naming your competition. And so here, hydrogen uh, fuel cells are naming uh, diesel as if it's their competition uh, and trying to get under it in terms of cost parity. But its competition is electric vehicles, which is already under diesel in cost parity. It sounds great when you name diesel as your competition, but no one's buying diesel cars right now anyway. They're buying electric vehicles. So it's some way off. It's always great if you can define your competition um, and then you can can market your... um, your kind of elevator test. This is why I'm better than the previous generation. But what they're not saying is we're better than the current generation. And uh, I think it's going to be a while before that, that you get a press release from Loop Energy saying our fuel cell system is more efficient than an electric vehicle. I don't think hydrogen's entirely competing within electric vehicle. Like, obviously, it is within passenger cars and the consumer market but when it comes to freight vehicles and long distance well i agree connor yeah no no and it comes to taxis and it comes to you know rapidly refueling uh taxis or it becomes uh, uh, the, the asset which is uh, a four hundred thousand dollar truck um, is left idle for five hours if you recharge it, it whereas you can fill it with hydrogen in five minutes now i think all of that's true and the and the energy density of hydrogen compared to uh, electric on a truck on a large class eight truck it, that's all that's definitely true you're right about that i remember volvo signed a um i think it was justin and MOU with Rio Tinto somewhat recently with regards to um, vehicle provisions for heavy duty freight uh, kind of differences and it was focusing on the provision of hydrogen fuel cell trucks so it's on its way it's being made and there is commitments from major truck manufacturers to get in on that before window closes by the way, for anybody who has not read um, Rethink Energy, you go to rethinkresearch.biz, you click on Energy, you click on Weekly Analysis, and that newsletter is free to view. Uh, all the other services require a, a subscription, which costs very little money, but um, but you can um, 
you might find it's worthwhile. I have one quite random small thing to point out from the, the orders section. I haven't actually had time to look into it properly, but I saw on the Chinese, uh, in the Chinese news that apparently there is a $440 million 4 gigawatt smart bracket uh, factory being planned. Now, it's not just for smart brackets. That doesn't take $440 million. It's also for high-powered concentrating solar modules, uh, namely gallium arsenide photovoltaics, which will be combined with mirrors. So, and actually, both me and I think it was Bogdan have, have written about this before. I mean, I, I was talking to some uh, Australian startup that had this idea of a concentrated solar power with mirrors, but you actually also have photovoltaics. You have a gallium arsenide um, module at the focus of the mirrors, and then you're using uh, water, actually, to keep the temperature uh, low enough that it doesn't you know, melt or whatever. Uh, gallium arsenide is the type of module that's used in satellites. Now, I think, Bogdan, you also spoke to a company that's considering focusing light using mirrors onto a probably, oh, yes, it was onto a gallium arsenide module. And now, apparently, there's a multi-gigawatt scale factory that's being considered for, for development in China for, for this type of thing. I just find that very strange uh, that it's that big already. Uh, and I, I guess I'll look into that, possibly writing about it next week. Well, you've written about China's efforts in um, concentrated solar before. Yes, um, but and they it's don't always do this. Quite no, no, they don't do this. But it always seems to me that the Chinese are more open-minded. I think they, they kind of have the view that if we haven't proved it doesn't work, we're not going to trust Western companies to prove it doesn't work. It might not work in the West, but it might work for us. Oh, so I, I think they, they they tend to be quite open-minded, and uh, and this could be true. So it's, it's not actually, it's not about, uh, oh, it's so viable that you can just go to some Western com country and say we have a viable financial proposition. Perhaps there'll be a Chinese government-backed project of this kind of scale, and that's why they're able to build this already. Hmm. That makes sense. Uh, and that, that, that would be my instincts, but, yeah. I mean, you'd have to, yeah. Well, I think you should look into it. I mean, it's, uh, it's um, uh, I mean, it, it's always interesting science, but, but we've seen things, we've seen them adopt vanadium flow batteries, and they, they never materialised. Well. Yeah, and, and, and they, they, they dabble with these things, and they have the money to do it, and, um, and they only need one or two of these things to be successful. And as I'm fond of saying, some of these projects might be profitable but they might not be scalable and globalized uh, you know it might not be possible to scale them and globalize them but that doesn't mean they're not worth doing for the one or two projects that you get out of it yeah so it's a very weird and highly specific thing to control to combine concentrated solar with photovoltaics yeah. these are very expensive the yellow but if they crack it, then that's another market that they own. Yeah. So if you're interested in the discussions in this podcast, uh, and if you have been and seen the weekly analysis and read uh, the sort of 10,000 words that we've put together this week, you might be interested to reach out to Simon at rethinkresearch.biz and uh, see if um, how um, a, a subscription to our paid services sounds and all those products uh, you can get by clicking the forecast and data button on our website and look at all the goodies that are down there um, including the latest uh, that um, is the 87 gigawatt 
jump in uh, photovoltaic into the half year that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. Thank you. And with that, we'll end this podcast.